Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. You know, today, I really appreciate the guest we're going to have on. She is here to really tackle some of the hard questions people have about recovery. And I know that anyone listening out there who's thinking about going into treatment or maybe who is in the throes of recovery has some difficult questions they want to ask themselves or, or maybe have some fears that maybe are keeping them from either going into recovery treatment or staying in recovery. And certainly as someone who went through that uh, journey myself, I know that there were some really difficult um, times and fears and questions I had myself. And now as someone who's helping people through that journey, I do hear the questions and the fears. And I know that some of the main ones that we're going to discuss today on the show are ones that people listening probably have themselves. So um, with that, I just want to delve in uh, and get into the show with our guest. Uh, you're in for a treat for anybody who's listening um, because the, our guest is an expert. Emily Murray is a licensed registered dietitian nutritionist and certified eating disorder specialist through the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals, which is IADEP. She established her private practice, Murray Nutrition, in 2020, where she and her two associates provide nutrition counseling and coaching and they provide that to individuals who suffer from eating disorders and disordered eating, weight and body image concerns, and co-occurring mental health concerns. Emily is often helping her clients sift through food and feelings and invites the deep emotional work that is required to heal from disordered eating and eating disorders. And in her free time, Emily enjoys arts and crafts, writing and journaling, being outside, and spending time with her husband and pup, Theo. Well, Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited, like I said in the intro, and um, so curious that, you know, a lot of listeners, they're always curious, like, how, how do the people you get on this show, like, get into the field? So I'm wondering, would you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Okay, so my name is Emily Murray. I'm a registered dietitian in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a certified eating disorder specialist. And how I got into the field. So I actually went into nutrition um, because I had IBS. So I was diagnosed with IBS in high school and that was pretty distressing to me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go into nutrition and heal my gut and it's all going to be great. And, and through that process, I actually ended up developing my own eating disorder, mm-hmm. um, and so I went through, you know, I did treatment. I worked with a registered dietitian and a therapist and a medical doctor. And it was a really, really great team. And I, I had an awesome experience. Um, and I would say that that really saved me from being kind of a dietitian that was going to mislead people. When I went in to become a dietitian, I kind of got caught up in all the clean eating and 
orthorexia type of stuff, which is, yeah, just an unhealthy obsession with clean eating and food morality. And I thought that that was going to be the way to, you know, heal myself and how everyone should eat. I had very little awareness of how mental health impacts um, your GI system and the gut brain connection and, and all of that stuff. So um, long story short, I had my own history with an eating disorder. That was a really awesome and healing experience. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to go into when, when I was feeling better and ready to do that. Well, thanks for sharing that. And as you said that, I don't know too many people that actually say that, like going through your eating disorder is like this awesome experience, um, healing for sure. But I'm wondering, would you be okay sharing a little bit more about that? Because I think most people kind of think about going through eating disorder treatment as this really long, lengthy, painful process that doesn't actually end up in healing. Um, So it sounds like for you, that was quite different. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I will say, uh, you know, as we know, there are a lot of different factors that can impact recovery outcomes and things like that. So um, I think one for me is that I had relatively early intervention. So I had been struggling for about a year and a half or two years with my eating disorder before I got help. Um, and, and that was a bummer, you know, I needed help ASAP. However, um, a lot of people wait a lot longer, you know, they don't have the resources, they don't have access, there's, we, we don't know what's going on. So I think that that was something that, that impacted my own journey, as well as, you know, having the resources to access um, care. And I think it's easy looking back on it now and being like, yeah, my team was awesome. It was a great experience, but you know, and that's true, but in all reality, I mean, it was painful. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. There were days when I thought, why am I doing this? I'm never going to get better. This feels so painful. This isn't worth it. My team is crazy. I don't trust anyone. I feel Mm -hmm. so alone. So, you know, it was definitely really, really hard. So my eating disorder really kind of picked up in college, you know, college was really hard for me. Um, it was a hard transition time. I didn't have a lot of friends. I felt really anxious, um, had a lot of mental health stuff going on. And that kind of really just created the perfect storm where, you know, my hobbies kind of ended up being, um, you know, exercise and restriction, you know, and Mm -hmm. I had the underlying IBS stuff. And so, you know, it really kind of compounded. Um, yeah, it really kind of compounded, but I kind of got to a point where I just felt miserable, um, mentally, emotionally, physically. And I remember calling my mom one day and being like, I think I have an eating disorder. Like, this is not good. I need to get help. And so I was, I was ready. Um, I was beyond ready. And I think that was helpful too, versus, you know, just being like a teenager being brought to treatment by a parent. That's just, it's a different experience. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit more. Um, do you have any, are any questions coming to mind about that? Well, you know, as, as I'm thinking about that too, like a lot of people like yourself have complications on top of the eating disorder, like IBS or diabetes or other, you know, medical conditions that I can, I'm wondering for you working now in the field, do you think that it's harder to treat if there's 
maybe medical diagnoses like IBS or something else where people are looking to um, have somebody like yourself, a, a dietitian and nutritionist, give them these guidelines and say, what foods can I eat? Because I, I often hear people say, well, my medical doctor told me I can't eat this anymore. I can't eat these foods anymore. And so they're looking, um, I guess, for guidance or they, they've restricted themselves so much. Like you said, diet, uh, you had, you know, restrictions and things. And I don't know if it was from IBS or um, something else to start, but a lot of people start out with restrictions because of medical diagnoses. And I don't know if that's a a path for a lot of people that you've seen or. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it is harder to treat, you know, it's, it's just another layer. It's just another layer to the nutrition rehabilitation process. So establishing very normalized eating patterns. Um, there's just other considerations to factor in when someone has, for example, something like type one diabetes, and it might be important for them to have the carb count to put in for their insulin. Or if someone has IBS or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or something of that nature, that can make, you know, eating really painful at times or really, really tricky, or there might be certain restrictions, you know? And so that, that is, it is more complex in terms of there, there's just another layer to peel back and something else to consider versus someone, you know, eating disorders are super complex, right? But if someone doesn't have that, you know, the biological, you know, illness, chronic illness, um, that, that it does add another layer. It makes it tricky. So, um, and you know, the word restriction, um, has come up a couple of times as we've been talking and, um, I know, people that are listening probably can relate or maybe they're even restricting right now um, for all sorts of reasons, whether it is, you know, they feel like they have to for their medical illnesses or they're in the throes of an eating disorder. Um, and so that, that gets really dicey when it comes to treatment um, because I know that's the biggest fear, at least, you know, I don't know about you, but I get lots of people making comments like that's my biggest fear in going into treatment is, then, you know, I have to eat and what's that going to do to my body? And, you know, it, people oftentimes will start treatment and they're not restricting anymore. And then they bounce out of treatment because that's so scary. Like no longer restricting is the scariest part. Um, and I'm wondering, I don't know if you're willing to share like your experience with that um, or what you see now with people in terms of how they manage no longer restricting in that part of treatment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's scary for so many reasons. You know, I think number one being even subconsciously, I think a lot of people don't realize this until they enter treatment, but restriction numbs us emotionally. And so th there's, there's kind of this benefit that we may not even really see where some of our emotions, you know, anxiety, depression, some of the really hard things that we experience in life restriction when our body doesn't have enough calories it's not online enough to process all of that stuff and to worry about it and so I think it's very common when we stop restricting all of a sudden we start feeling all these things it's like when we push a beach ball down underwater we can keep it there for 
five seconds, maybe 10 seconds if you're really good, but it's going to come up and it's going to come up hard and fast. And that's what happens a lot of times when we stop restricting, we feel worse before we feel better because we feel all these things that we've, we shoved down physically. We feel worse too, because the body just has to get used to having a normal amount of food in it. And if you've been restricting and then you start adding foods back in, that might be really uncomfortable for GI system. You might get full easily. You might experience nausea or alternating um, stool, like constipation, diarrhea. You might have a loss of appetite. So there's those, you know, there's the emotional piece. There's the, you know, physiological piece. And then there's a weight gain piece too, right? You know, if you are restricting your food, um, whether or not you think you need to restore weight or not, your weight is probably being artificially suppressed. And so when you add back in food, it's not uncommon to gain weight, not because foods are those foods are bad, not because those foods are weight gaining causing foods, but because you've been depriving yourself. And so of course, when you start having the appropriate amounts, you probably will gain weight, but that is very, very distressing um, for a lot of people because of the culture that we live in, um, Mm -hmm. where fat is bad, weight gain is bad, incredibly narrow, thin ideal. It's just, it's painful and it's really scary. Yeah, that's, you know, it's always a hard topic to broach because when people, I don't know, you get up, you know, people I work with ask like, well, what's going to happen when I go into treatment, but you know, I'll go into treatment as long as I don't gain weight. And to your point of like the society we live in, um, really putting all this fear into that. Um, how do you have conversations with people about their fears and, um, you know, when that comes up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really tough. Um, something I never want to do is, is guarantee that someone will not gain weight or that they will stop at a certain point, you know, cause that's just not, I don't have the power to know that. Right. Um, but what I can do is provide education on the fact that, you know, body diversity is a very real thing and we are, you know, all genetically created very differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very common, you know, for there to be a wide variety of bodies on this earth. And two of the same people could eat the same food, work out the same amount, you know, whatever, move their body the same way, and they would look very different. And so really just kind of providing education and normalizing all types of bodies, I think is, is important. I think also normalizing the fear, like it makes sense that there's fear there, but we also have to think about what the eating disorder and the restriction is taking away because yeah, most people in eating disorder treatment, they're not going to be like, yep, sign me up for the weight gain. I'm super happy about that. Like that would be pretty uncommon, but some people are at the point where they're like, I'm miserable. I may not like the weight gain. I may not love it, but yeah, I I can't keep doing this. Like this is getting in the way of my family life. This is getting in the way of my social life. This is, you know, this is really hard to make friends this way. So I think when we can 
think about, you know, what, what the benefits could be of restoring nutri- our nutritional health. And yeah, that could mean some weight gain, but it could also mean, you know, a much freer, brighter, fuller life. I, I think it's important to think about some of those things. No, I love that too, because I think there's way too much emphasis and focus on the external, the body. And it's really, you know, the eating disorder, because you thinking, you know, I'll be happy when, or, um, it's all about that. And that seems to be so much of like the deterrent to entering treatment. And that's really just a big distractor. Like you said, it's, it's not about that at all. Um, you know, it's really, like you said, looking at what is the eating disorder, like you said, taking away from your life, um, because you could, what is the purpose if you're like sitting at home, restricting alone, exercising all the time and you quote unquote look great, but you're not socializing or you're not having a life. Why are you doing all this? Like you're just living this life on a hamster wheel and kind of taking a step back going like, okay, I'm doing all this so I can look good so I can be happy. But the path to happiness is really lonely and painful. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of us believe the lie that the path to happiness is by being thin. Right. Maybe we've experienced that. Like maybe we have experienced compliments on on our bodies. You know, maybe we have had weight loss or (coughs) our current weight or whatever. Maybe that's been reinforced by other people. And that's a fear a lot of my clients have of what are other people going to think? What are they going to think about me when I've gained weight? What are they going to think about me? You know, they're obviously going to stop commenting on my body and blah, 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 blah. And that's really painful. It is so, so painful. I remember crying myself to sleep one night, just realizing how painful that is that some of the people in my life had no idea how to connect with me other than just saying, you're, you look great. Your weight looks great. This is the smallest I've ever seen you, right? That's so painful. That's so, so, so painful. Um, What I try to encourage my clients to think about, though, is, you know, we're all living in this diet weight-obsessed culture. And so a lot of times when people haven't done their own work around this, they're just spewing out their stuff, right? They can't help it. It's the first thing that's coming out. Um, they don't know how to say, they don't know how to talk about hard stuff. They don't know how to say, Hey, how are you really doing? And just go straight to, Oh, you look great body. Um, and the other piece is that like some people, some people might judge you. Some people might say rude things to you. I don't know, you know, but a part of recovery is kind of figuring out who are my people Um, how can I find connection in this world, um, that's apart from just the superficial body thing, like Mm -hmm. also my clients, like compliments, that's not the same as a connection with someone. Um, and the eating disorder really is just a master of disconnection and isolation. And, you know, I think just thinking about that as we're thinking about the possibility of weight gain, also kind of what we talked about, thinking about, you know, the, um, the detriments or the, the really harmful things that could happen if we stay where we're at. 
break, that's not a discussion very often had either. I think our society is very much pro-restriction as well. Um, like I look online sometimes and I'm shocked at what misinformation is out there about food to your point about, <laughs> you know, like you said, you, you went down the path a little bit there about clean eating, orthorexia. And I think that is very promoted. And and even I, I get the majority of the people I get for an it, initial intakes really do think um, that what they read on the internet is, is true and accurate. And I'm not going to say numbers here, but the, the low amount of fuel that they believe they need and that is required to sustain life is shocking to me, but that is rampant on the internet. That's rampant out there as if it's like the common standard and it's way below what's actually necessary and needed. I don't know if you're finding that too, but it's shocking. And people are often shocked when they do go into treatment, they get a meal plan or, you know, we discuss what they actually need for daily, you know, intake. And they're like, that's way too much. I can't do that. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there are certain apps that people have used (laughs) and there are websites. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, completely underestimating nutritional needs, or it might even estimate it right, but there's user error, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone's like, oh, I don't really move my body at all. Or I think I need to subtract XYZ number from whatever they give me, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there can be user error and they can just be off and counting, you know, counting calories, you know, meticulously looking at labels, like, that can just be a lot, especially for someone whose brain and temperament might run a little bit anxious, might be a little bit all or nothing. You know, those, those types of people are very vulnerable to this nutrition misinformation or even taking information that might be helpful, but turning it into an extreme. And that's something that I really spend a lot of time with my clients with is like asking where's the context here? Where's the nuance? Where's there, where's the gray area? Is this always true? Um, or has this become kind of a a rigid rule that's kind of creating this prison in your brain that that's really hard to break free from? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would imagine it's hard for you to kind of counteract a lot of the misinformation out there. Um, cause there's so much of it. Um, it, you know, and it, I, don't know what kind of questions you get again, but I constantly hear, well, of course there's bad food. Of course there's food that's unhealthy. Like how can you say processed food is good for you or okay to eat? And like all these things, because you know what they're reading online is absolutely not, this is bad. This is not okay. <laughs> like, again, these absolutes. And, um, you know, when you're in the stores of eating disorder, it's really hard to, you know, counteract those distortions. So, um yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll kind of make up a scenario and ask like, Hey, what do you think is healthier? Like going after dinner to get ice cream with a, a new group of friends that's invited you or sitting alone in your room, counting almonds for your dessert. Hmm. And a lot of people will be able to see like, uh, even though I might have a hard time seeing that ice cream can be healthy the first one sounds more well-rounded the first one kind of sounds like 
a healthier life, right? Because I think sometimes we get so focused on nutritional health and choosing all the right ingredients and blah, blah, blah. But then we forget about physical health or we forget about emotional health, social health, you know, all of the other mental health, all of the other realms that are neglected when we get single minded and solely focused on all these numbers or things like that. So that's something that, you know, we'll talk about something like that. And also just trying to look at food more neutrally, like, Hey, I don't really care if you think it's bad or good. We don't even need to get into that really Mm -hmm. and truly ice cream. Like there's calcium, there's protein, there's some fat, there's some carb. Like it's pretty balanced. Like it's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Am I asking you to have ice cream for every meal for the rest of your life? No, that wouldn't be healthy, but it also wouldn't be healthy to have kale for every meal for the rest of your life either. So really just trying to find like the middle ground in all of these extremes. And that's what you see online. The all of the nutrition information is, it's just so extreme. It's so like, this is the one way to do it. I promise. And it, it leaves people feeling really anxious and disappointed. Yeah. I love that you brought that up, that health, health is more than just what you're eating and your activity level. There's all sorts of different ways that your life can be healthy. Um, and the eating disorder certainly takes away you know, your social connections and all sorts of other things in your life that make life worth living for sure. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I think people think about that also often, right? When they're in the middle of it all, like you said, it kind of dampers when you're restricting anyway, it dampers your ability to think clearly or feel things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it kind of brings up another um, question I have too, is, you know, these quote unquote, healthy foods, (laughs) you know, I don't like using healthy, unhealthy, good, bad. I think labels are awful. Um, but when you're in the eating disorder, you know, people have those labels and so they get a little scared. Um, I find to, well, what happens if I'm exercising or eating the foods I used to label as good or bad or healthy? Does that mean I'm back in my eating disorder? Like, is it okay to eat those things? Like people get all sorts of confused and especially if they come out of like a higher level of care in the outpatient or something, they're like, what do I do now? I'm, I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling kind of ungrounded. Um, yeah. I mean, it's tricky because a part of, you know, if you have a history of restrictive eating, a part of your process is going to be allowing yourself to have foods that you did not used to let yourself have. And sometimes you need to have those foods over and over and over again for repeated exposure. So maybe for a while, you're not picking any salads at all. You're just picking, I don't know, the pizza, or you're just picking the pasta dish or whatever. And that's really good. We have to have the exposure because that's how we get over the fears. And that's how the anxiety comes down. But when I'm working with clients, we're, we're not trying to take anything away, really. Like, we're not trying to take away fruits and vegetables and, you know, protein and, and all of that stuff, but we're making room for more. So we're not just having vegetables. We're not just having whatever, lean meats, clean eating, whatever, whatever all these ideas are, we're creating a lot more space for a lot more 
variety. And yeah, if you used to be someone who used to restrict by eating XYZ meal or food, it can feel really scary to eat that food again. You might even have an aversion. Like for me, I had, you know, a certain meal that I had a lot in my eating disorder. And then in my recovery process, I was like, I can't even look at those foods. Like I'm not even going to mess with that. And I th- I remember I would see people who would eat like a salad for lunch. And I'm like, they're disordered. They're disordered. I can't believe they're doing that disordered. And the reality is that in recovery, you can have a salad and it not be disordered. And there are a lot of people who are eating a salad and it's disordered, right? Like we never really know. It all comes down to intention and working with your own body. And if you're working with a team, that can be really helpful too. And in honoring, you know, what you're craving, what your body feels good on, um, while also not letting fear drive the bus, which is important. Right. That's, that's the big thing is the fear, right? Um, what kind of typical fears do you hear people talking about when you're working with them? Yeah. So I think it's kind of, you know, fear of, you know, somewhat of the, you know, traditional foods that diet culture labels as bad. Mm -hmm. Then it might be fear of accidentally not eating enough. Mm -hmm. I'm doing well in recovery. And so I don't want to mess anything up or fear of, um, yeah, fear of eating the food that I once had in my eating disorder, fear of eating the the diet option or whatever, um, fear of getting off of a meal plan and getting messy with it, because that can, you know, what if I relapse? What if I'm not doing well? So I think that the fears can kind of morph. And then of course, you know, with, with a lot of my clients, they'll see different things like fear of eating in front of people, fear of grocery shopping, fear of choking or vomiting on the food. You know, there's a lot of different ways that fear can come up with food, um, that, that we're trying to tackle through, um, I primarily use CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy, we're making connections with our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors. And and we're really challenging some of the distorted thinking patterns and then also exposure and response prevention, where we are um, encouraging ourselves and challenging ourselves to eat the fear food and not doing anything about it. We're not going to go compensate. We're not going to go look up all this information about it. We're not going to whatever. We're just going to eat the fear food and like let it be and watch our anxiety rise and fall. And over time, that fear fear becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I hear so often, I'm sure you must too, like, oh, I can't have that. Like, I, I don't trust myself around it or, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to have that in the house because, you know, in the past I've, you know, eaten all of it or, you know, um, so that fear of like, what, what if I'm alone with that food or what if I actually have it in the house, then what? Mm, yeah. Yeah. What if I actually enjoy it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if, what if I eat too much of it? What if I binge? I think that that's a big one. Um, and it's like all of these, what ifs, you know, I think even if something like that has happened in the past, I think we can remind ourselves like, this is not then this is a new experience, a new situation, a new season of my life. 
I'm not necessarily trying to go back to where I was. I'm trying to create a whole new way of doing things. And that's going to take some trial and error. And you know what? If you accidentally overeat or binge in the process of trying to nourish yourself, that's okay. It's messy. It is so messy. And it, it makes sense as a response to restriction biologically, our body seeks out the foods that we aren't getting enough of. It seeks out foods that are going to nourish us and satisfy us. And when we put certain foods on a pedestal or we tell ourselves, no, I'm not allowed to have those ever. And then we break the rule. It's really common to kind of say, well, screw it. I've already messed up. Right. And then just go, you know, punish ourselves almost by eating X, Y, Z amount. And so there's a lot of layers and it can be really, really tricky. And a lot of times I think clients will see that when their worst fear happens, they're actually okay. And they're more resilient than they thought they were. And that sometimes the fear, the worst part was the buildup to the fear, but actually facing the fear was not as bad as they thought. Yeah. Well, it's great that, you know, you're, you're speaking about this because I think, you know, just having the dialogue is important. I don't think we talk about this enough or people are open about it, um, which is the whole point of, I think, why I have the podcast is because I want to bring out the realities or maybe what people aren't vocalizing themselves to maybe the people around them or what they're really um, afraid of or what, what maybe the hurdles are for them in terms of seeking out treatment, like this fear of like, oh my gosh, if I seek out treatment, are they going to make me try to make me, right? Quote unquote, try to eat these foods and, um, am I going to be able to do this? And what happens on the other side? Um, and, you know, just to know, like, yeah, these things happen, but this is part of recovery. It's part of getting past all of this. It's not this straight line of like, oh, you come into treatment and everything flows perfectly down this linear line. No, no, I know. I know. If only, if only (laughs) the other thing I often hear too, sometimes is, um, clients who maybe aren't sure if they meet criteria for an eating disorder or a client that lives in a larger body, mm-hmm. like having kind of imposter syndrome, like I'm afraid that, you know, you're not going to believe me or you're going to look at me and be like, why is she here? That I'm along here, that I'm not sick enough, you know? And so I think fortunately the field has come some way in terms of recognizing that eating disorders and disordered eating impact all people, all shapes and sizes, um, races, ethnicity and sexual orientation, gender and all the things. But, you know, I I think weight stigma is still alive and real. And and that can be when someone's experienced that it, it can be just hard. And so I think just providing that safe space for you know, people really validating their experience in, in all body sizes and encouraging regular nourishment, regardless of your body size, can be really, really healing for folks. Oh, absolutely. So often it's, oh, well, you don't look like you have an eating disorder or people tell themselves, I don't, oh, I can't have an eating disorder. Look at me. And it's like, again, this focus on the external when it's like, this is an illness. It says nothing nothing to do with the external. You can't look at somebody and know if they have an eating disorder or which one they even have for that matter. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So for anyone listening out there, you know, I think that's very common that, oh, I'm not sick enough or I really don't have one. Um, you know, it's really up to, I guess, seeking, a, you know, the help of a professional and getting an actual assessment to know if you have one. Yeah. And really a professional that knows eating disorders and is health at every size and all the things, because I, I, that was a part of my story. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't restrict enough. I'm not underweight quote, quote, like I'm fine. I'm literally fine. Um, and then I actually went and saw a dietitian and I said like, Hey, I, I kind of got to a different point. And I said, I think I may have an eating disorder. Like I restrict and binge. And she's like, no, 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 no. You don't do that. You don't do that enough to have an eating disorder. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, great. I, you know, I was happy to hear that, but then the eating disorder grew, right. It grew and grew and grew until it's like, okay, here we go. Right. And what we know is that the earlier we can intervene, the better treatment outcomes are. And so, yeah, if you, if you have people in your area that can see you telehealth that have that specialty, that, that can be really, really important. Oh, absolutely. So that's why I love too that you're a certified eating disorder specialist, right? Um, love having experts on here because you know exactly what uh, is going on. Um, because there there are people definitely that say they work with eating disorders and so much, and you know, I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but there is a lot of misinformation or um, you know, just messages that are kind of more in line with what's on social media or out in the mainstream, um, more focused. I, I, at least I find, you know, just be mindful and aware for anyone listening. There's a lot of information out there for people that say they're pro nutrition, pro health, pro, you know, whatever it is. And it's really a diet in disguise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so with that, you know, if you want to work with Emily, because she is, um, an expert in the field and absolutely wonderful um, in helping people. How can they find you, Emily? Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Instagram at Murray Nutrition, M U R R A Y. And then our website is murraynutritionco.com. So those are easy ways to get connected. Fantastic. And your Instagram is amazing. So, yeah, anyone listening, go on over there after and go follow Emily. She's great. All right. Any last final words before we end? Gosh, I don't think so. I'm just really, really grateful that you have me on, that we could have really, really honest conversations about, you know, eating disorders and recovery and the process that is, it's just so hard for so many people. And I'm just really, thankful and grateful to be able to offer, you know, a word of encouragement and hope. And that's really, that is what it's about. I think the hope if we can have, you know, more discussions and people can really know, Hey, you know, if I have an eating disorder, I can get better. I can recover. I think that's a lot of it. So hearing it even from you, like you had one and you recovered and now look at all the great, wonderful work you're doing. That's inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, 
the publisher or the guest are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.